G'day and once again, welcome back to the podcast. In our little adventure, today is Saturday, 16th of November, 1946. Today's episode is the longest one in this podcast series, and that's because it relates to Betty's longest road trip. And it all began with a cracked tooth from a lemon sherbet. But I'll let Bet tell the story. Written from Nanchang, Changsi. This is Betty Suter, here at Unra, Embankment Building, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, China. Greetings. Well, I've been to the dentist's and now I'm home again. Going to the dentist's is quite an adventure over here. So I have started off my letter with quite a large slice of news, commonplace though it might sound to you. An emergency was declared to exist when I broke off half a back tooth while thoroughly enjoying myself with some barley sugar that had just arrived from home. The question of that moment was, where is there a dentist and how will we get her to him? Some inquiries resulted in a three-ton truck being borrowed from the local Sunra office, complete with Chinese driver, and Betty Mavis setting out therein on a bitterly cold morning at 7am for Changsha, Hunan, 376 kilometres away. Sorry, 246 miles. I wanted some company, thinking it a long way to go alone with the Chinese driver, not yet knowing much of the lingo, and being fully aware that my road lay through the worst part of the bandit and tiger country around here. And I'm not kidding. We have plenty of bandits and a fair proportion of tigers of the West Mountain. The boss would not agree to letting one of the girls come with me, but he granted my request for a Chinese interpreter. The cashier in our office, one David Wu, a pleasant young man, quiet, good company, and an excellent interpreter. David and the driver, here in after called Lou, were duly shivering on the doorstep when I emerged in the half-light of 7am. And it was surprisingly dark here at that hour now, and we bundled into our truck with Marge waving a fond farewell at the gateway. I must confess that I was unusually lucky in getting one of the newest Chev trucks from the yard and one of the best drivers. I have had a lot to do with the Chinese in the transportation and warehousing section and they seemed very happy to give me the best that they had for my trip. Of course, we took supplies with us to offload at two of the Sunra field stations along the road. Transportation is so scarce that the most is made of every run out into the country, with skim milk, soup powder, flour and medical supplies. Also, our full load of gasoline, I'm getting out of the way of calling it petrol, for the trip as ballast. We slowly cleared the Nanchang Bridge and gathered speed for our long ride. Actually, it was a cold, bleak grey day and the joyride was robbed of a little of the high spirits that it might otherwise have had. The roads are bad. I will probably not comment on that again, 
as I begin to take bad roads very much for granted, though that is no reason why you should let that fact escape notice. All roads in China must be bad, I think. They are of mud surface mostly, clay, that sticks badly when wet and then hardens like concrete under the ensuing sunshine into the most amazing ruts, ridges and ditches. However, I leave that as a basic element of the ride. The road was bad. The countryside does not vary much, although on this trip, at the border between Changxi and Hunan, we drive for some miles through a valley between fairly high hills. This is not a mountainous region, with the exception of the cooling range in the north, and it was quite a break to be amongst some hills and valleys, rather than always between low, undulating paddy fields. There are always people trudging along the roads, coolies, wheelbarrows, idiot sticks and wicker baskets, pigs, water buffalo, ragged soldiers, bare-feeted children. There are always bare-legged coolies working in the fields, at this time of the year sowing winter crops, digging in the peanuts or sweet potatoes or turning over the shorn rice paddies with homemade ploughs and the ever-faithful buffalo. There are always groups of clay brick huts and mat-shed tea shops every mile or so along the road, with a conglomeration of people and animals, tables and charcoal burners. Lu is an enterprising lad, like most Chinese. I had to remonstrate with him, partly in the interest of my personal safety and partly in the interest of the nice new Chev truck donated by the taxpayers of the United Nations. He knows the sale price of gasoline on the local market and realises what profits can be derived from coasting. He would step on that accelerator like nobody's business and shoot over the ruts at 50 or 60. I didn't know that a big truck like that could go so fast. Then switch off the ignition and bump along till almost at stopping point and then off we would go again. I'm quite sure that even in spite of my criticism, we must have coasted nearly half the way to Changsha. He seems to think that the lower gears involve the use of too much gas too, because we coughed up some of the inclines in top till I felt an almost human sympathy for the engine. However, we made the distance and I suppose he made some money, so I shouldn't complain he didn't. Our first stop was Shankau, which we reached after about four hours of driving. We went straight through Kaoan, having no goods to deliver there. At Shankau, I took David into the Sunra office and arranged for an inventory to be taken and a set of figures to be prepared for me to collect on the return journey. I looked at the condition of the storing facilities and of the goods in store and had to indulge in the usual palaver and tea drinking for a while. In the meantime, the stores were offloaded and the driver had his breakfast, having not got up in time to have it before we set out. The usual mob surged around the Megwa. All foreigners are Americans to the general Chinese populace, while I drank some black coffee from my thermos.
three quarters of an hour we delayed at Shangkao, and then off again for Wang Sai, the next big town. Wang Sai is famed here for its grass linen cloth. I didn't have time to dally there as it turned out, for one look at the hotel convinced me that I must make it to Changsha in one day, even though I had my own cot and bedroll in case of a hold-up or delay. This part of the road is the worst, but we bumped over it in good time. At Wonsai, which we reached at about 1pm, we got rid of the rest of the supplies. While the driver attended to this, checked on the gas and ate a meal, David and I walked out further along the road with our packet of sandwiches and our thermos of coffee in an endeavour to find a sunny spot out of the wind and comparative freedom from the inquisitive onlookers. We found a spot right at the foot of an old pagoda with its seven roofs to heaven and a stumpy bush sticking out of the windows and crevices. Yes, a very handy little deserted pagoda. I have a quality that is common in the Chinese. Curiosity. David was true to his nationality and shared my desire to see inside our little pagoda. So we clambered on the bank and through the tall grass to the entrance. In we went. Strangely enough, it was clean in there. We were disappointed that there were no stairs leading up in a spiral as is customary. So all we could do was just look up. Our curiosity sated, we came out, struggled through the tall grasses again, down the bank, to wait on the roadside for our transport. Silly rabbits! We had forgotten about the grass seeds, and we were absolutely smothered in them. Plenty to do till the truck came along about half an hour later. I shall always think of Wangxi as the place where the crops of grass seed grow. Lou had a sheepish expression when he arrived due to the presence of a fellow traveller in the back of the truck. Through David, he said that he hoped I would be kind enough to let him bring this passenger. I agreed, even though it is a bit against the rules and the decision had to be mine. Lou looked relieved and he had the expression of one now about to enjoy life a little more because, believe you me, those drivers charge their passengers pretty solid prices for a lift and collect before the trip just to make sure. This delay had cost us an hour and a half, but I was still determined to get right through in the day if possible, and Lou, happy now, said that he didn't mind the long drive for his own part and that he would do his best to get there. For another four hours, we covered the ruts and suddenly came upon a barrier across the road with a couple of soldiers holding red flags. The Hunan border town of Shan Lucy. Registration was duly made and highway fees paid. Hopefuls clamoured for passage, but Lou did not make any further requests. We were informed that the truck ahead of us had furnished the booty for the bandits for the day and that we could expect safe passage as it was not usual for them to attack twice on the same road on the same day. Incidentally, I had got David to give my very firm instructions to Lou 
that he was not to stop on any account for anyone, soldiers or otherwise, outside of the towns, even if firearms were levelled at us. Whether he would have done as I had said or not, we'll, we'll never know. I was content, though, that he knew how to make use of the accelerator on the truck, and I cannot say that the thought of Chinese bandits terrifies me overmuch. I have not yet seen a Chinese person that I would be afraid of, other than from a disease point of view. I still hate to rub shoulders with them. The skin diseases are so prevalent. Having passed through Shan Lu Si, we entered the valleys between the hills, and the darkness began to close down on us. It was almost dark when the engine coughed and we ran to a standstill. That is it, I thought, and it flashed through my mind that, though a lonely spot, my cot in the back of the truck under the tarpaulin would not be too terrible. Infinitely better than any Chinese pub. However, it was merely a matter of gas, and the tank was refilled in ten minutes. Blockage in the pipe caused Lou to bury himself in the engine for another fifteen minutes, during which I began to wonder whether I could spare David a blanket. But all turned out all right, and we were off again, our passenger having settled himself happily down for a snooze. David and I had devoured the last of our sandwiches and coffee, with Lou coming in for a fair quota too. We still had a fair bit of ground to cover and two ferries to cross. I lacked the necessary faith to sit in the truck whilst Lou drove on to the ferries, both rather makeshift affairs with wooden planks wired across two sampans. But there were no mishaps. We had to call out the guard and produce all kinds of identification papers before the ferrymen would rouse themselves and take us across. They, maintaining that their responsibility towards travellers ends at dark. However, a few bills changed hands and I disclosed my Western nationality, and all was well. The sergeant of the guard even invited me to have dinner with him. It was then about 7.30. With weak headlights and aching bones, we made the rest of the journey in cold and darkness and entered the city of Changsha at about 8.30pm. Next problem was to find the billet. None of us had been to the city before. Our passenger had hopped off at the last ferry. Lou went over to something that corresponded with a hamburger shop and found that we were only about 200 yards from our destination. The Unra billets and office and the Sunra office for Hunan are all contained within the one big compound. The compound used to belong to the Bible Institute, who will again occupy it. I suppose, after this show winds up. The Bible Institute is a combination of the Protestant missions in China. There must be quite ten large buildings within the compound, but of these only one is not used by Unra Sunra, and it houses a group of about 250 orphans. The buildings are set out in a rectangle with a big open grass quad in the centre. Naturally, we drove our truck to each one of the unwanted buildings before we found the UNRWA notice up. I trudged around the place until I found someone who could show me a room and tell me where David and Lou could go. My bedroll and bag and I found ourselves in a warm little room with a bed, 
that appeared the most welcome thing on this earth, and I directed the boys with truck off to the local YMCA. It was too late for dinner at the hostel, but I did not have the energy to go out in the town to eat, so I just flopped into bed and slept soundly until seven the next morning. My awakening was somewhat unusual. I thought I was dreaming and that a choir was singing a familiar tune. The tune resolved itself into the Chinese national anthem. I still thought I was dreaming, and the tune changed to row, row, row the boat. But when I heard the farmer in the dell, I hopped out of bed, quick smart, and looked out the window to see all the little orphans lined up in the quadrangle singing their little lungs out. It was a morning routine, and I found it very handy to have such an alarm clock while I was there. These children are fairly well set up and derive considerable advantage, I think, by being so continuously under the eye of the Sunra-Unra people. Nevertheless, I felt some kind of remorse at seeing them stand barefooted on the frost-covered grass, clad in the most motley garments you could imagine. If it were not so tragic, it could be funny to see the combination of ragged Chinese clothing supplemented with bits and pieces of Western used clothes. However, the kiddies look to be in fairly good health and they really seem to be happy. While on the subject of used clothing, I must tell you that I have seen the human puss in boots. At one of the ferry crossings on the return journey, there was a curious little boy, a lean 10-year-old, pausing on his way home to the fields. He was in ragged Chinese clothing and held a homemade hoe over his shoulder. His head was clean-shaven and he wore no hat, but his feet caught my attention. On his tiny, lean feet... He was wearing a pair of Western-style boots, men's, size 8 or 9. Naturally, he moved along in a shuffle, for his feet could lift so easily right out of his footwear if he raised them too far from the ground. The toes of the boots were turned well up, and the tongues flopped in and out as the little fellow made his way along the road. I need not digress on that part of the trip, which was, in a way, the most important part, namely the visit to the dentist. I was delighted to find a capable young Britisher at the clinic and to find that he was well equipped with the most modern equipment and assisted by an exceptionally clean and hygienic assistant. You cannot know without coming to China how pleasing that was to me. He solved my problems for me most capably and comfortably and had me ready for the homeward journey within 24 hours. Of course, I wasn't ready to go home then. Having come so far, I intended to see much of this new city, and apart from that, our new boss at Nanchang had commissioned me to purchase for our hostel a set of 25 carpets, which are unprocurable in Nanchang. I still could easily justify remaining at least three days for my sightseeing and my carpet buying. Hunan has probably received more publicity than any other part of China during this post-war period. Hunan is ordinarily one of the wealthiest provinces in China, 
but it has the reputation of being, at the same time, one of the most unfortunate provinces. The Chinese themselves seem to accept the disasters for Hunan as a natural result of its unusual wealth. I can well understand that it is a rich region. The hills are full of coal, not yet mined from any part other than the easily accessible surface seams. One can see the coal in the hillsides, waiting to be gathered. And silk! I have never seen streets of silks and silken embroideries like those of Changsha. And I would not expect to see it again. The merchants of Changsha must be bolstered up with untold resources of capital. It is not only the silk merchants either. I would say that anything at all can be purchased in that city, in any quantity, suitable, of course, to the living needs of the Chinese and to their tastes for luxury. The shops are all stacked to capacity. Food and cloth, silver and gold, fuel and other essentials. And what is more, the prices are no higher but often cheaper than in our own province, which is supposed to be reasonably priced. Of course, their prices are much cheaper than Shanghai too. I was not outside Changsha City in Hunan other than along the highway from the border for the hundred-odd miles, but I still have not seen any dire distress or starvation conditions. From my few days of observation, I would say that the Hunan office has done an excellent job of distribution, and it may be responsible for the good conditions as I saw them. I know that the worst areas are in the southern part of Hunan, in and around Hengyang, and the welfare teams from Changsha are still working at full pressure down there. David and I wore out the soles of our shoes walking around the city of Changsha. It's quite a fascinating city, and it is colossal. In ground space, I think the city is as big as Sydney, though it's hard to find where the city ends and the suburbs begin. Several times, when David asked a policeman for directions, we found that we were out in the suburbs. Many of the shops have most attractive modern faces, and all are colourful, being painted in blues, yellows, pinks and greens. Few have more than the ground plus one floor, and most are only the width of a single shop front area at home. We found our way to the waterfront. The river passing Changsha runs out into the Yangtze and was, as is usual, cluttered up with masses of junks and sampans loading and offloading all manner of goods. I watched the Unra flower from Canada coming ashore, and I watched the small children cadging and scratching around to collect some of it. The kids have developed quite a system and have different methods of going about the job. There was one ruthless little beggar who sought out the slightly worn paper flower bags, dug a pair of chopsticks into the warm part until there was a decent tear, and then dipped his bowl right into the flower and took what he wanted. His mother, I presumed, was sitting there waiting for him to bring the spoils and put them into the cotton bag, which was assuming fair proportions. The kid cleared off as soon as he saw my camera whip around, but 
I guess he was back as soon as I left the scene. A little six- or seven-year-old girl adopted the sweeping technique, which was the most generally used. She followed along behind the trolley cart, loaded with flower bags, drawn by the sweating coolie. He proceeded pretty slowly, of course, and, as he went, she swept with a little coarse brush the surface of the flower bags, getting the excess flour into a little dustpan. It is amazing how much can be collected in this way from the outside of a few flower bags. Another child sat on the ground where the bags were being dropped from the coolie's shoulders onto the trolley cart, and he simply raked up off the ground the flower dust and filtered it from the mud through his fingers into his rice bowl. Even while I witnessed all this, I noticed that there was plenty of little food stalls around the waterfront areas and that most people had their bowl of rice or the necessary grubby dollar bills to buy a lump of steamed bread, a baozi, mince wrapped in a type of pastry, or a few tangerines. Maybe I've grown cynical or suspicious, but I find that I can serve my sympathies now until convinced that they are merited. Squeeze is the national password, governing a great proportion of the activities of all individuals. Since it is generally recognised, accepted and practised, perhaps it is not so regrettable. But to a young country girl like myself, I find it pretty hard to take with equanimity. David escorted me for the whole of one day walking around the city, in the little narrow stone-paved streets, as well as through the main thoroughfares. I nearly died of exhaustion after it all, but would not have missed it for anything. We had considerable respite at midday, however, when we found a restaurant which could provide the needed fortification. It was Chinese chow, of course, and Chinese chow always takes a little while to prepare. It is only prepared after the order has been given, and while one waits for the cooking to be executed, one is furnished with tea, green tea, watermelon seeds, and peanuts. If desired, wine is taken at this stage also, to fill in the waiting moments. And then you sit there, at a round table, on a small, square, backless bamboo stool, cracking watermelon seeds between your teeth, spitting the shells out on the floor, waiting for the food to come in. I think we spent about two hours over lunch, including the waiting time. But David is always interesting and tells his tales of China with an almost Western sense of humour and many digs at the Chinese habits. Are you interested in the menu? On this occasion we had, I think, shrimp in scrambled eggs, my favourite dish, mandarin fish with sweet and sour sauce, mushroom soup, soup is always served last or second last in China, shredded chicken with bamboo shoots and some greens. Yes, it was a very good dinner. I'm not a rice enthusiast, but David had his bowl of rice concurrently. On this particular day, we did some shopping too. My odds and ends I will be bringing home, but many of them are to be surprises, so I cannot recount them here. Naturally, I could not resist the silk embroideries. 
so I have indulged in the luxury of a blue silk bedspread with golden birds of paradise on it. Also, a white silk tablecloth with red gold dragon, representing the male, and peacock, representing the female, struggling to gain the red pearl, representing happiness. I am pleased with my purchases. Having seen the city by day, we wanted to see it also by night, so I invited David to dine with me at another Chinese restaurant one night. After winding our way through dark, cobbled byways, we found a good restaurant of which one of the silk vendors had told us and enjoyed a particularly good dinner. Then we walked again, and we walked and walked. We found a street filled with shops selling artificial flowers, paper gods, and religious paper money. Another street was given over to shoes and slippers and another to stationery and books. The paving of the stone-paved streets intrigued me. David told me that already those great stones had stood firm, bombings notwithstanding, for more than a hundred years, and they appear to be good for several more centuries. The slabs of stone are about four feet by one foot, and about one foot thick. They are of granite, which abounds in the nearby hills. They have been laid closely and in perfect alignment, and in such a way that the drainage has good access below the pavement and is completely covered. All the narrow streets and lanes that we went through were paved in this way. I could not possibly estimate the tonnage of granite that must have been lumped by cheap coolie labour and set down in that city. It certainly makes for a greater degree of cleanliness. Changsha does not have a big supply of electric power, and therefore there is not much lighting at night. All the smaller shops and stores only have kerosene lights or candles, and there are no street lights at all. One cannot safely proceed without a flashlight. During the course of all these goings-on, I was conducting my parlays with the carpet manufacturer, who, I found, had no stocks on hand and could only make three carpets a day at most. It looked for a while as if I must spend at least eight days waiting for the carpets to be made. But David got to work on the old boy and I was not a bit surprised when he suddenly found that he was able to furnish the whole lot for us by the end of the fourth day. Nor was I surprised when he declared that the prices had gone up recently. I doled out a million and a half dollars and called it a deal. Sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? In actual fact, the total was approximately 150 Australian pounds. Actually, I was, and still am, against the purchase, as I think that it comprises an unnecessary luxury, which could have been done away with in favour of giving that 150 pounds to relief purposes. However, I am not the boss here, and he thought the carpets to be an essential to our ordinary comfort. So, there they are. It was typical of Chinese business methods that the merchant offered to roll the carpets for me for loading into the truck, and having done this, demanded 1,000 Chinese dollars, two shillings, for the bit of rope that he had used, and some com shore for his pains and trouble. I paid for the rope, but no tips. 
He did very well out of the deal, having got double the former price from us. Anyway, I must admit that through David, he paid me a high compliments, also business routine, and gave me a small strip of carpet as a memento. The four days had passed quickly. As far as the Changsha Hostel and personnel were concerned, I did not exist. They do not care for transients and only provide the barest necessities in way of courtesies and hospitality. It is probably because they have so many people passing through, and also because they are a big staff, 61, and are themselves always going out to the field and coming in. Theirs is quite a different setup from ours. I have an idea that I jumped the market on the carpets too, and that some of them had had personal orders in for weeks and weeks that are still unsatisfied, which did not add to my popularity. However, I enjoyed my stay and accomplished all that I had set out to do. And so on the morning of the 20th, I groped my way through the fog to Lou and his truck, found David waiting, organised some coolies, and had my carpets loaded. And we were off on the return journey, just as the little orphans, hardly discernible through the murky fog, reached the final bar of the national anthem, we drove out of the compound and started for home. I told David to tell Lou that he might take up a few passengers, providing he did not overload the truck, which of course was only carrying a very light load when we set off. And along the road, we were soon hailed by the usual hopefuls. Much bargaining went on, and we acquired in all about seven passengers and their luggage before we left Wangsai. It promised to be a good clear day and was much warmer than the preceding few mornings had been. The mist was still lying across the fields, hiding the hills completely. We crossed the ferry in the hazy light and I was fascinated to watch the silhouettes on the opposite bank of the river. The coolies were on their way to the fields, some in long gowns, all with pointed, picturesque hats and carrying various implements over their shoulders. One was leading a buffalo along the ridge. In the grey-blue of the morning, I loved the picture before me. Wide fields, divided into odd shapes by low dikes. Occasional coolies, leaning on the ploughs, planning, I suppose, the day's work. Tumble-down huts with thatched roofs, leaning walls, and children toddling around the doorways, lazy buffalo wallowing in the mud holes, the low hills gradually emerging from the veiling mists, long rows of shorn rye stalks evidencing the masses of crops that have fallen to the harvesters. It was sort of lovely, quaint, picturesque. Everything seemed part of an old-world picture that everyone has seen and known. I have often seen it in picture books. The day grew bright, not a cloud in the sky, clear blue with sun shining. In the sunlight, the hard brown soil looked harsh and unyielding. The rice stalks were coarse and old, the hills bare and brown. The clay brick huts looked dirty and uninviting, and the people shabby, grubby and slovenly. I shuddered at the dirty pigs and chickens grubbing around the houses and looked away from the coughing, spitting coolies. In the light of day, there is nothing attractive about the Chinese countryside. 
though to me it is always interesting. And so we drove home. Our only delay was at Wang Sai, where we lunched. David and I again walking out of the town along the road till we could find a more or less uninhabited corner. Lou filled the gas tank and lunched in town, gathering in the last of his passengers. The road seemed endless. David nodded and his head fell on my shoulder, to Lou's great delight. How David slept over those bumps, I do not know. I remained conscious throughout. At 6.45pm, the truck pulled up outside our compound, and I trudged into the house, feeling quite thankful that I was in time for dinner at 7. I walked into a roaring party. The boss was celebrating his birthday. I was not permitted to creep away after dinner. My release only came at half past midnight when the party broke up and I tumbled wearily into my own little bed. That, my friends, was my trip to the dentist. Fun, wasn't it? Cheerio now. Much love from Bet. Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn, and the featured tune from 1946, which was one of five top ten Freddie Martin singles in 1946, a famous treatment of Flight of the Bumblebee, and the tune is Bumble Boogie by Freddie Martin and his orchestra featuring Jack Fiener at the piano. (laughs) ¶¶ 